Before we get to our interview with Gabrielle Brady, wanted to let you know that uh, the sound quality is not where it should be. You're going to need to turn up your device, whatever that might be, in order to hear all parts of the interview. I apologize, and thank you for spending some time with us here on Film School Radio. Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. On an isolated island in the Indian Ocean, land crabs migrate in their millions from the jungle to the sea. The same jungle hides a high-security Australian detention center where thousands of asylum seekers have been locked away indefinitely. Their only connection to the outside world is a trauma counselor by the name of Poo Lin Lee. The film is called Island of the Hungry Ghost, and we're joined today by the writer and director of the film, and that would be Gabrielle Brady. Gabrielle, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I am just absolutely thrilled to have you today, and it is this is such a uh, a beautiful film that uh, draws you in with its look and this in this tone and this feeling that it has, but it's also such a heartfelt film. And um, I'm just kind of my I guess obvious question is how did you get to know Pooh, and sort of what was the genesis of that into a documentary film? Mm. Yeah, so Poland um, had been on the island for about three or four years by the time I I came onto Christmas Island. Uh, And the way I came to to be on there was really as a tourist. So um, me and Poe are actually really, really good friends. And usually when I tell that to people, there's kind of a penny dropping of like, oh, okay. Uh, I think there's an intimacy that can be felt in the film that goes beyond um, you know that that time frame of, of what it takes to make a film, and and for us, it's very much that it's that ten year friendship um, that the the basis of, of the film sits on. So having known Poe for all of these years, um, I happened to be living in Indonesia at the time with my partner, and and Poe was on Christmas Island, and so she had invited me across as as uh, you know as a holiday, and. I remember in that time that, um, you know, things had already been getting very complex and and very difficult for her and her work. And so we had made a kind of agreement that in that time we wouldn't uh, speak about her work. You know, we would really try to just be enjoying these two weeks holidays. And so we did, you know, we spent Christmas Island is also this very idyllic and, uh, you know, very beautiful location. And at the very end of that time, um, Poe said to me, I remember really clearly, she said, you know, I need to show you something before you go. And we drove up in her car um, to a lookout point and um, there was a very dense jungle. We had a machete, if you're on Christmas Island, you always need to have a a thick, you know, a big machete to get through a thick jungle. We made our way through this very thick, overgrowth and we arrived at this lookout point which is the lookout point that looks down onto the detention center and it's the only place on the island that you can actually see the detention center and so it was a very 
in a way, it was almost a frightening moment um, because I knew this detention centre was there. I knew that Pauline, you know, obviously worked in, in this place. Um, but it had been, you know, it had been really hidden. And I had this really distinct impression at the time that it had been built to... Um, to be hidden, you know, and it was it was kind of this invisible force, and that was kind of a little seed that was planted that um, you know, and a huge intention for both me and Pauline was to make visible this 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 entity that had been in a way so invisible to us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that was that was the moment that yeah. comes to mind. Well, that that scene is is in the film, and it is jarring to see that uh, it really is when you see just how large it is in relation to the landscape around it how much it takes up yeah. I, I don't know how many people are detained there but it looks like several thousands maybe even tens of thousands but at least several thousands of people are are detained there yeah it's interesting because the geography of the the detention center on this you know it's quite a small island christmas island it's actually built at the the whole other end of the island so on one end is where all of this the settlements where people live where all the shops are and then the detention center is built on the complete other end of the island where essentially there's just jungle um, and, and it is. I mean, the impression that we give in the film isn't, you know, this is really how it looks in, in real life. And it's, it's, a, it's, a huge, it's a huge force. And it's being built for, uh, for definitely thousands of people. And, and it's, at its largest capacity, there was around three or 4,000 people uh, being detained. Okay. Um, and Christmas Island's population is at around two to three, you know, two and a half to 3,000. So at its largest capacity, there were more people being detained within this one center than there were, you know, on the entire island. I want to I get into a little bit of sort of the, I want to talk a little bit about Christmas Island in terms of its location and why that factors in to why there are several thousand people there in that detention center, sort of the, a brief history of people yeah. seeking asylum and this uh, Christmas Island is under the governance of the Australian government. So just I want to establish sort of the, the context of how and why they're there. Yeah, so, I mean, Christmas Island has a fascinating history that I won't go too far into. But, mm. um, you know, there's no native people to Christmas Island. So the only natives to the island are the, the crabs, that mm. I'm sure we'll come to talk about a little <laughs> bit later. Yes. So everyone arriving to Christmas Island... Um, have you know have migrated there um so in a lot of ways it really is like that microcosm um you know like australia <clears throat> except of course australia has indigenous population um and apart from the indigenous population everybody has has migrated there so on christmas island there's been um waves of migration since just the um you know the early 1900s which was when it was first founded so it has a very you know, a very early human history. Um, it's one of the, the last actually discovered places on Earth in terms of, um, you know, colonization and human arrival. And, you know, in terms of how we arrived at there being a detention center, um, it was governed by, you know, it was governed by Britain for a long time and then handed over to Singapore. Uh, and then eventually in the 1970s, it was handed over to Australia govern- um, to be governed by Australia. And it wasn't until the 1990s 
that some um, you know, groups, and actually the very first group to arrive was a group of Chinese uh, asylum seekers, seeking asylum to Australia. And, and the reason for that is that Christmas Island is a landmass, is the first kind of piece of land that you reach if you're coming across from Indonesia um, or from anywhere you know, in, in, on the Asian side. So, and, and that stretch of water between Christmas Island and, and Australia is kind of seen to be one of the worst stretches of water in the world. And it takes several days um, you know, by boat to reach Australia. So it made sense for people to seeking, seeking asylum to first um, you know, arrive to Christmas Island because legally uh, Australia needed to um, respond to those people seeking asylum. So it all kind of tentatively began in the 1990s and, and um, definitely more so over the last 20 years. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why, you know, the types of group of people and why. Um, but really what um, has started happening in the last 15 years is that people are arriving to Indonesia mm-hmm. um, from Middle East. And from Indonesia, they're able to um, be in communication with, you know, um, <clears throat> with um, people running with boat captains there. And those captains are bringing them across to Christmas Island. So, and there's usually two journeys. One journey is from Indonesia, and that's a three-day boat ride. And then there's a, a journey from Sri Lanka, and that's a 21-day boat ride. Oh my! Uh, and that is for Tamil people that are that are seeking asylum. So, it's unimaginable, uh, especially in these kind of waters. As I said, they they are seen as some of the most treacherous waters in the world. Um, and so, in response to that, um, about 15 years ago, the Australian government. Built these detention centres, uh, implementing a plan that eventually was to turn back boats, turn back people, and to stop people um, entering, you know, borders into Australia. Right, uh, I, and I don't want to stretch this uh, comparison too far, but in some ways, the Christmas Islands are a shade of of Guantanamo would be for the United States in the sense that it seems to operate under its own sort of judicial system that is separate from the from Australia. Is is that fair? What I what I'm saying. Um, I mean, I think <clears throat> what what has really struck me and um, you know journalists and and filmmakers that have been covering this for many many years because of course in in my film it's. You know, it's not actually covering anything new. The way that we see it, um, you know, and the way that we receive what's happening is is new. But the information isn't new. It's something that we as Australians have known about for a long time. But a lot is left up to the imagination uh, mm. because nobody's actually gained access into the detention centre for this time. And so I think it's fair to say that um, in that comparison that there's been an element of secrecy to what has happened in these places. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, of course, that stretches across the people being detained, but also the people working within the system. As we see with Colin, you know, by the very end of the film, um, you know, there were... <clears throat> a new law had been implemented that could see her facing two years imprisonment for talking about what she was seeing inside the detention centre. So I think... Yeah, I think certainly there's that same element of secrecy. Um, And then, of course, you have to ask yourself why. You know, why is what we're doing to people that are seeking asylum? These are not criminals. Why? 
um, is it that there is this whole, um, you know, system of secrecy in terms of what happens in these places? Why isn't there transparency? Um, Yeah, and that was certainly something that we tried to cover in the film. Yeah. Well, thank you for that history, that overview, because I think it's important for people to understand there is this geopolitical kind of uh, template over over what is happening. And many, uh, I think Indonesia is the most, uh, by population, the most Muslim country in the world, and the seeking of, of asylum uh, kind of follows along those lines. Uh, well, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Gabrielle Brady as she's the director and writer and other roles in this amazing documentary film called Island of the Hungry Ghosts. And you can go to the website Island of the hungry ghost.com to find out more about the film and screenings and how you can view it it's on now it's available on amazon uh amazon prime so well let's get into the filmmaking because it's just absolutely stunning to look at it's a, a very con- contemplative film in many ways uh, a, a film that takes its time in explaining the what is happening on the island you mentioned Poulin lee uh, the, the crabs, the, the migration of the crabs. I mean, the sort of juxtapositioning of these crabs migrating across the, this landmass and contrasted with the detainees in, the, uh, in this center uh, is quite striking and I'm sure deliberative, but, uh, or deliberate, pardon me. And, um, but I, let's talk about Poulin Lee and how, how her remarkable level of empathy and frustration sort of plays into the story that's being told yeah i mean i think very early on when um you know when we started having these talks about if we were to respond to what was going on what could this look like what could a film you know could there be a film um and i went to the island for the first research trip um i think for me it was a you know being on the island itself being immersed in the landscape um, being witness to the migration of the crabs, I had a very distinct view and a very distinct um, kind of uh, impression that we had a film, you know, because of course, as a response to what was going on, it could be an article, it could be a podcast, you know, what is going to actually make this a film? And for me, the first kind of really turning point in knowing that, that yes, this can be a film, we have a visual story, because of course, how do you tell a film about a place you can't actually enter into? Um was the island, you know, and and the migration of the crabs, and so this was kind of the starting point for the film, actually above above anything else. And you know, in that early phase, um, you know, I was speaking a lot to Pauline as our, you know, because of our strong relationship, and then her relationship to the island and to the people she was working with. So she was really kind of this um, relationship point and this, you know, collaborator in that way. But at, at that moment, it wasn't clear that she would be, you know, the main character of the film, um, our main focal point for the film. And that was really something that kind of grew alongside the research. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, it was very organic. It was the way, seeing what was happening through Pauline's eyes, and through her, you know, her family and her children, and the way she relates to her, to uh, the people that she's working with, allowed that like, it expanded my perspective. It expanded my compassion. It expanded my understanding. And and this was really a lot of the ideals and the intentions that I wanted to set for the film. So it was quickly really apparent that we would 
that we would be journeying with Pauline and, and that through Pauline we would start to uh, access and, and enter into some of the other stories. <clears throat> but it was also really important that when we were with the people seeking asylum that it was really about about them, you know, and these were really, as, as you see in the films and the therapy scenes, they're, they're kind of more encounters than anything else, you know. They're, it's not that we, we have the luxury of, of following them and, and being inside the detention centre with them. It's really inside of these white room, you know, these white walls inside of the therapy space that we, we sit with those people. Um, but it was really important to us that when we do that, it's, it's not about Pauline, it's not about seeing them through her gaze. It's really about us being with them and, and that they're the masters of their own stories. Um, so even though we were journeying with Pauline, really the idea was that when we arrived at other stories, with the migration of the crabs, with the island of the hungry ghosts, and and especially with the people seeking asylum, that the gaze would be, you know, shifted and would be with them, you know, and in a way it would be more of the gaze of the island. So, yeah, it was, I mean, it was a long process, you know, obviously as well, we're, you know, we're best friends, so there was also that element of working together um, that was, you know, a, a very new scenario for both of us, but it was a very rich collaboration that lasted many years. <laughs> and the thing about her, what it makes it so compelling is she is such an empathetic person. She seems so um, present in these sessions, these uh, therapy sessions with the different people that we see in the film. And every one of their stories is really very emotionally, um, very strong in terms of just telling a very human story about people who seek nothing more than a life that anyone would want, which is a life that they can live in some degree of freedom and to be able to uh, pursue their families and their interests and and it it just it's and the way that and this is where I want to bring in the look of the film the uh, cinematography uh, is fantastic throughout it is sort of this dreamy haunting sense of the way that you filmed it in in but also in these scenes with the with Poulin and the people that she's speaking with talking to it just draws you so much into their story and to them and it's just a it's such a beautiful part of the, the uh, of watching uh, island of the hungry ghost talk about that talk about what you were looking for when you when you, how you did this yeah absolutely so uh the cinematographer is michael latham and you know what's so special about his work is that he he's really moving between you know, fiction narrative and documentary filmmaking. He, you know, if you look at his bio, he, he literally steps, you know, one for the other. So he kind of, he has a foot in both worlds. And I think, you know, the way I describe his work um, is that he has, you know, he has the eye uh, for narrative filmmaking <clears throat> in that he's, you know, he's an extreme perfectionist uh, and he, you know, he's very knowledgeable in, in history film and, and he really has an eye for cinematic image uh, but he also has the attitude and the this kind of you know the way he just throws himself in um you know of a, of a documentarian as well so he's kind of he kind of wears these two hats and and that's you know and that was really exactly what i was looking for i think um you know this film it, it sits on the cusp like you said you know in terms of um you know for myself i think i'm very much a believer in a film's a film um 
and not necessarily in in, in categorization. Um, and you know, I think obviously it's a documentary because these people are real and these stories are real, and that you know that's the most important thing to be recognised. But a lot of the approach, of course, as you see in the film, is um, is looking at it with an eye of uh, you know, that it, that an eye of a narrative. Um, and that was really how we constructed the film in, in the approach to scripting, in the approach to cinematography, in the approach to editing. So with the cinematography, um, you know, a lot of what we were trying to achieve was, and there were layers, of course, as we see in the film, we have one layer with the migration of the crabs uh, and the imagery from the island. And, and the approach was that, to that was very much about evoking this sense of uncanny, um, you know, mystery. You know, we're not really sure what's happening. We're, we're, we're all creeping towards something, but we're not really sure what that is. And that was, you know, I really wanted to play with these tracking images to evoke that that sensation. Um, so the, the, the approach to cinematography and the whole structure to the film is that it's a sensation. It's a sensation that we're creeping towards something um, untoward and we're not sure what that is and it, and it feels like it could be mystical, it could be ghostly, it could be, you know, and, and in the end, of course, it's in a way kind of looking at our own humanity and, and what we've created, you know, in this place, in this feeling of, you know, dystopia in a way inside of this detention centre. Um and you know but but every layer is very different the layer inside of the therapy scenes was very much about evoking a sense of intimacy and how intimately can you be with someone you know and the idea for me was very much <clears throat> about having uninterrupted shots you know so we were working towards having one takes inside of the therapy space as much as possible, of course, because it was a, a real therapy space. We were there just to witness it. We couldn't direct that space. Um, but to have this really uninter uninterrupted uh, intimacy, very close imagery um, that we're mostly just on that person uh, and every now and again we move across to Pauline and that we just have the the very quiet intimacy of, of that space with these kind of halogen lights, you know, that it that it feels a bit kind of alienating as, as well as intimate. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I could talk about this for hours and hours because <laughs> I think um, I get very passionate and I, you know, in terms of talking about um, the visual approach to the film and each layer was very different. But, yeah, it was a, it was a big process and a, and a huge element of that really was finding the right cinematographer for this film and, and that was very much Michael and his ability to move between those two worlds. Once again, that's Michael Latham, and uh, you're absolutely right. And I, I want to make uh, what I hope it's not too um, big of a um, a leap into an observation about the sort of the theme of the film for me about migration, immigration, legal, illegal, and all of these these questions that come up in this very organic way in the film. But I do feel that increasingly the world is is heading towards a place where migration on a scale the likes of which we have never seen in the history of civilization is dawning. And how are we going to process this where climate is impacting huge population centers that will have virtually no choice but to leave where they are? And now we are, and th this, isn't, this is happening all over the world, and, and we see how regressive 
so far how regressive the reactions between the major industrial countries have been towards this and where and how does this play out and i think your film is a a primer on you know along with many other films about immigration here into the united states but we have to figure this out and we have to figure it out in a way that is not cruel and and brutal and i i don't know if i make again i want to be sure i'm not leaping too far ahead of the of the curve here in terms of what your film is about but it feels like we're going to be seeing more and more stories that are about migration and how we are coping with it that we are just beginning to you know sort of come to grips with yeah i mean i think <clears throat> a very big intention from you know from from the very first moment of approaching this film was that you know, this isn't, it's, you know, and, and for those who have watched it, it, it's not a journalistic film. We don't get a sense of what time frame we're in, what year we're in. Uh, you know, we don't get facts and figures. We don't even get a sense necessarily of where people are from or the reasons why they're seeking asylum. And so there was a huge, you know, I was seeing that the need to create a film that takes us on a much bigger perspective and by extrapolating the context that suddenly this is a film that is set in you know on the US Mexican border or that is set you know in in any part of the world that that this can be completely relatable to any of these scenarios because it is it just has um, you know certain facts and figures applied to it but at the very root core of it we're seeing the same issue and the issue is that it's becoming politicized and that the people in those countries are being taken on the river of of this politicization and and in a way agreeing to what's happening or becoming you know shielding their eyes to what's actually happening and you know finding a rationale for it but when you strip all that back and actually see it for the root core of what it is and in this film that's really sitting with those people inside of this therapy space and learning that they're being ripped away from their family members, that they have to see their neighbour being, you know, taken away in the night without any explanation. Like, when we actually rip it away and get to to the core of it and we're able to see people as human beings that that could be our family members, that could be our friends, that, that isn't about, you know, creating these distinguishing features of religion or country or anything like that, um, I think that's when we see the real terror of it. That, that we've become complicit in something that is terrorizing and that is terrifying, um, that we would never wish upon um, anyone that, that we have within our own lives. And so this was a huge, you know, this was kind of a huge intention for the film, to strip all of that back and, and to get to these very raw ideas. And so, yeah, I think... You know, and I think there's a need for those kinds of stories. Of course, there's also a need in, in terms of uh, journalism to be marking what's happening, you know, exactly at what time and be holding those countries accountable. Um, but I think there's also this need to see things on a much larger scale in terms of this has happened in the past, it's happening now, it will continue to happen. But how do we see those people? How can we look at those people with compassion and humanity and if we start from that place, rather than thinking of those people as illegal, as, um, you know, as a problem, 
already how does it start to shift our response you know in terms of of nations and in terms of people and community so i think yeah i mean again it's it's something that i could talk on for a very long time but um that was certainly my approach with this film and in the last part of our conversation i do want to talk a little bit about the acclaim uh that the film uh Island of the Hungry Ghost has has achieved. Uh, it's a Spirit Award nominee for Best uh, Documentary of the Year. Um, also, to bridge back to our the conversation, the part of the conversation where you're talking about the sort of the melding of um, of documentary and narrative films. Honeyland was nominated for, I believe, Best Documentary and also Best Foreign Film. I think it's the Academy Awards. I, I'm not sure. I've forgotten which of the major awards, but I thought that was an interesting development in terms of the perception of film and film filmmaking. Um, uh, it sort of we're moving closer and closer to what you were describing earlier. But talk about uh, you know first of all about the Spirit Award nomination and what's that what that has meant to the film in terms of raising the profile, but also as a filmmaker, how's that impacted you? Um. I mean, I think, you know, I think recognition is, uh, for me, is just kind of a very simple pathway to having more people see the film. And so, you know, having had recognition in a lot of different um, contexts has been really surprising, actually, in a lot of ways, Um, but obviously really brilliant. I think this film was very much made for an Australian audience and and an international audience. You know, this wasn't something that I hoped would only have a profile in Australia or only have a profile internationally. I, you know, and I think my biggest fear in a lot of ways was that it wouldn't actually, you know, get much of of a a run in Australia, and it did. And I was really, you know, because it felt incredibly important that this really was taken back home, so to speak, and, um, you know, sit in a very localised audience, obviously it being the place where where this story uh, takes place. But yeah, so I see this, you know, this nomination as um, just another way to hopefully build another profile, you know, a bigger profile, which then equals more people seeing the film because, you know, for me, that's really the end game. Uh, and I think also, of course, having, as you mentioned, uh, with Honeyland, which I haven't seen, and I'm, I'm really excited to watch this film, but, um, you know, to have these films that kind of play, play with genre or that move between worlds or that kind of you know, um, I guess try to kind of lessen the divide between this idea of narrative and and documentary. This is just so exciting for me. This is a whole other thing that I could talk hours about. Um, and so, you know, for that film to be recognised as both, you know, best foreign film and documentary, I think is incredibly exciting. I think it talks about so much progression in terms of how we receive films and, and how we view films. And you know, and how we begin to talk about films in in a much more complex and nuanced way. And this is the thing about ghosts. In the end, you know, if I if I mean to make a, cat, a categorization, as I mentioned, of course it's a documentary because, you know, to give worth to the stories of, of those people in the film. You know, this didn't come from some writer's head. This was, you know, this was this is real and this is really happening. But of course, then you look at other scenes that have been really, you know, fictionalized, or there's been a co-creation or a co-authorship with the, the person in the film. Um, so for me to just call a film a film allows there to be a much more nuanced conversation about the approach and the ethics and, and how the filmmakers actually 
made the film. So, yeah, so I think that's, you know, a really interesting conversation to have at the moment, and I'm, I'm excited to be recognised at the Spirit Awards, you know, as a film that, that does call itself a hybrid documentary. Yeah. You know, it's funny, I, and I don't want to get off on a extended conversation, but I'm thinking back on people like Errol Morris, who started with Thin Blue Line, the reenactments, and how that sort of, for me, was the sort of uh, cracking the door open on the idea of this kind of hybrid of a narrative and a documentary. And I think he's come all the way around with Wormwood, where he actually made a narrative film as a companion piece to a documentary, or you could say it the other way, a documentary and in 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 as a companion to a, a, a narrative film. So as you're as we're talking about, we're, we really are in the in in the beginning of breaking down these barriers. Yeah, it's an exciting time. <laughs> well, I want to thank you, uh, Gabrielle Brady, so much for, first of all, for the film and for the experience that uh, I take away from the film and also for your work and continued uh, good luck and success. I, I look forward to more, and I hope that when the time comes, you'll, you'll come back and spend some more time with us. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your time. Once again, thank the writer and director of this wonderful new film, Island of the Hungry Ghost, Gabrielle Brady. Gabrielle, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.